The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley. With me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He is a traditional Catholic priest and a member of the Society of St. Pius V. He's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. And yourself? Doing well. Thanks Good. for being here, Glad Father. Here. Great to be back for another week. Um, we have a lot to get to tonight, Father. There is definitely a lot going on in the world, a lot going on... Uh, with our viewers, and so I'd like to, to jump right into one question from a viewer who says he has read that the uh, Daughters of Mary, established by uh, Bishop Bishop Kelly, uh, he, he's read that they do not have canonical approval and their vows are merely private ones. So would you shed some light on the legitimacy of the Daughters of Mary and what their true status is in this time of chaos? Well, they're perfectly legitimate, there's no doubt about it. As far as the religious vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience, they are private vows. And um, they vowed to be obedient to the rule, and according to the rule and the constitutions, that they have vow vowed to follow. Right? They've done it for the greater honor and glory of God to follow this rule. Uh, they recognize certain superiors, and they recognize that according to the rule, and, uh, that uh, they have certain authority granted to them by the rule, and by virtue of their vows of obedience to follow the rule, they're obliged to to obey. But they are private vows. Uh, there's no doubt about it. With regard to legitimacy, again, there's there's no question. They're perfectly legitimate. And they're choosing to do this. Uh, again, a vow uh, involves choosing a greater good. And to live the evangelical counsels of poverty, chastity, and obedience is definitely a greater good. In itself, and um, notably for those who are called by God to that vocation, can one realize uh, her vocation uh, under these circumstances? Yes, even today, even in the world today, the modernists are striving to destroy so many religious orders and, and religious congregations. It is possible to live the evangelical counsels of poverty, chastity, and obedience, and. Uh, uh, Bishop Kelly long ago recognized the need for this because young ladies were coming to him. Uh, they had nowhere else to go, really. They, they had nowhere else to go to truly live the traditional religious life. They couldn't find any place in any case. And so uh, his goal was to provide for them uh, a, a means, uh, a venue, where they could actually live out those vows. <clears throat> and uh, so through... His own uh, efforts, but through the sacrifices of so many dear souls, including the young ladies themselves, it is actually happening right now in Round Top that the uh, the sisters are there living out the vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience, these evangelical councils. You know, remember what our Lord said to the young man, the rich young man who came to him saying, well, Master, what must I do to have everlasting life? And our Lord said, well, keep the commandments. And then he, our Lord, spoke the commandments. 
the commandments of Moses, honor thy father and thy mother, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, and so on. And the man said, well, these I have kept from my you know, youngest days, my childhood. And our Lord looked at him and saw a goodness there and said, well, if you want to be perfect, then leave all things and come follow me. And that's one of the evangelical counsels. You know, It's not required of everyone, but it is a counsel for those uh, who want to follow the gospel and want to follow our Lord most closely. In this case, detachment from the things of the world. And that corresponds to the religious vow of poverty. Um, <clears throat> together with it, we have the, uh, the vow of chastity and the vow of obedience. Again, the, the things, the, 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 um, the vows, the promises made to God to follow a more perfect way of life that is wholeheartedly dedicated to the service of God. Um, and so, um, that's what the daughters of Mary are doing, following that. And, uh, there's, there's no illegitimacy in that. I even asked a, I even asked a Novus Ordo clergyman once, <clears throat> was on national television, oddly enough, if, uh, if he recognized the legitimacy of, uh, the rightness of, uh, daughters of Mary. And he said, well, uh, he, his answer was, well, of course, no, no religious community or religious congregation is a cult, he said. And so, um, you know, if you, if you just take that at its best value, it's as though he's saying, well, no, uh, this can't be, this is not illegitimate. It's certainly not a cult because, you know, he's saying this is a religious community. This is a religious congregation. Mm-hmm. And so he, he certainly implied that, uh, unmistakably. So, I mean, even, even the Nova Sordo has to recognize that. In fact, I would hope that they'd recognize it even more so because if they look at their own, what's, What's left, the tatters and, and, and rags of what's left of the religious life in the Novus Ordo. Yeah. I think those who came to the, you know, novitiate round top would say this, this is the religious life. This is the truly traditional Catholic religious life. Not what we see, you know, uh, basically presented by the Novus Ordo, uh, throughout the world today. I mean, there's some more conservative, uh, communities and, you know, congregations, as it were, that were established, have been established by the Novus Ordo, uh, where the, those who come, again, try truly to live the religious vows, okay? But unfortunately, of course, they're tied up with the Novus Ordo. They have the new, the new liturgy and all that goes with it. And, um, unfortunately, they're entangled with the new religion of the, of the Novus Ordo. Uh, but where you have a truly traditional Catholic congregation, it has the integrity of the traditional Catholic religious life, including the traditional mass, sacraments, and devotions, and so on. Okay. All right. Um, then we have another email, Father. This is um, back from, from February and March. Uh, we had a reviewer asks, if you knew of uh, an Archbishop Lenga, L-E-N-G-A, from, uh, from Poland. He asked what you thought of him, Father. Uh, apparently, uh, again, I think back in February or March, uh, this Archbishop Lenga declared Francis to be an anti-pope. Uh, he wrote that, uh, he said, Christ gave me the authority through the church to proclaim the truth, and I will do this until I die. He said, it is difficult to believe that Pope Benedict XVI freely renounced his ministry as the successor of Peter, 
says Bergoglio has not confirmed himself in the faith and is not passing that faith to others. He is leading the world astray. He proclaims untruths and sins, not the tradition which has endured for 2,000 years. He proclaims the truth of this world, which is precisely the truth of the devil. Father, what do you think about Archbishop Langa saying these things? Well, I, I must say it sounds rather harsh, uh, but the reality is what it is. The truth is what it is. And I think he's speaking exactly the truth there. Uh, Archbishop Linga has since uh, incurred the wrath of the Vatican, as you can imagine. <laughs> I understand there have been serious efforts made to silence him, that he was sent to a monastery. Uh, but he says he will not be silenced. And nonetheless, I haven't heard much from him in the last month or two. Um, I guess last February was when he was speaking most boldly. In fact, I, I saw a citation for him that said, I, I will not be part of a church that is ruled by, uh, what did he say, uh, by Protestants, uh, Islamists, and Jews. Uh, he said, if they want to uh, do these things, let them go establish their own church in their own name, but let them not uh, presume to, uh, as it were, preempt the Catholic Church and claim that they are speaking in the name of the Catholic Church. Uh, that's a paraphrase, but it's pretty close to what he said. <laughs> so, um, you know, he he's, he's speaks exactly what's what's happening there. This is what Francis is doing. His latest encyclical, so-called, is a prime example of that, which I, I suppose we should talk about tonight somewhat, too. Sure. But um, now, I don't know what has become of, of Archbishop Lenga recently, uh, whether they've succeeded in silencing him. Um, I just haven't seen much from him. You, you know, Tom, here, here's the issue, okay? Uh, as with Archbishop Vigano, okay, he was speaking the truth uh, about uh, what was going on in the Vatican and about, about Francis' involvement with all of the evils, especially the abuse crisis going on, and how Francis knew it, was promoting people into positions and holding them in positions of authority to, um, you know, propagate this evil. And he became pretty much the hero of conservative, even the conservative Novus Ordo. Yeah. You know, Catholics were very upset about what was going on. But as soon as he started saying Vatican II is the problem, then immediately like 90% of those cut him off. You know, as soon as he started criticizing Vatican II, it's as though, oh, he's crossed the line, you can't criticize Vatican II. And so uh, you know, he became the bad guy. And he was denounced by the very people who, you know, held, held him up as a courageous voice of truth just uh, days before. And so with Bishop, Archbishop Lenga, I think he's speaking too much, too, uh, too, uh, too truthfully and too boldly. And I think that most of the, the even the conservative Nova Soto Catholics say, oh, this is, this is crossing lines too hot to handle. He's now calling into question even the legitimacy of Francis uh, as the vicar of Christ on earth, and we can't go there, absolutely have to avoid it at all costs. And so I think he, he became kind of a non-person for them. He may be speaking, but obviously he's not being quoted by, you know, even the conservative Novus Ordo Press. I haven't even seen much coming from the, uh, the traditional Catholic news outlets about him. So I, I don't know what's become of him. I think we should all pray for him, though, because he obviously sees what is being uh, foisted upon the, the Catholic pe people or what remains of the Catholic faithful from the Vatican is not Catholic at all.
Yep. He sees that very clearly. Yep. Definitely. Um, okay, then next email. <clears throat> this viewer sent us a very interesting quote from Father Amorth, who we, we have uh, referenced on the program many times. Um, Father Amorth, I believe this was in 2008, said that evil exists in politics quite often, in fact. The devil loves to take over business leaders and those who hold political office. Hitler and Stalin were possessed. How do I know? Because they killed millions of people. The gospel says, by their fruits you will know them. Unfortunately, an exorcism on them would not have been enough since they were convinced of what they were doing. We can't say it was a possession in the strict sense of the word, but rather a total involuntary acceptance of the suggestions of the devil. Our viewer then adds, when one considers possession in this broader sense, it would seem to possibly be applicable to not only Francis and the Novus Order hierarchy, but uh, also many of today's politicians and super wealthy businesses. They seem to fit this profile of a, quote, total involuntary acceptance of the devil's suggestions. What do you think of that? <clears throat> would you agree? Uh, I agree, but I have to, I'd have to qualify it somewhat. You know, uh, Father Amorth said something. He said that, essentially, in his book, An Exorcist Tells His Story. Uh, now, whether that is excerpted from the book or whether it's an interview, I don't know. I believe it's an interview. Is that right? Okay. So, well, it doesn't surprise me because it's perfectly consistent with his book, An Exorcist Tells His Story, okay. which I think people would do well to read. But um, Father Amorth uh, speaks about possession and the influence of Satan in the lives of these people who are in positions of great power. Well, these are obviously the ones Satan, Satan particularly focuses on. Because Satan is not omnipotent. Only God is omnipotent. God can work through the, the, the most meager, meager individual. I mean, look, our Lord came and he, he, he chose fishermen. He chose a tax collector. He chose a zealot. He, he chose people who, in the eyes of the world, were insignificant or even despised. Um, and uh, God has the power to make great out of, out of little things. Satan really doesn't have that power. Um, so he has to kind of simulate that power by looking for the powerful in the world or using the material things of the world to give someone power that way. But he doesn't give it to them. He only lends it to them. He only rents it to them and charges an enormous fee in return, as you know. They're very souls. But he has to work people into positions of power and influence in the world in order to uh, uh, work through them and... It's that they're working with the power he's given them uh, or lent to them, but he's working with the power also that he's given them. And this is how he does this, wreaks this terrible damage. Um, I mean, there's no doubt that the Hodolomor of uh, the Ukraine, the starvation of millions and millions of people under Stalin, that's, that's satanic. There's no doubt that it was satanic. There's no doubt it was satanic government here with William Durante, where he's writing for the New York Times and so on, winning a Pulitzer Prize for it. Covering up this terrible evil. Yeah. All of these things are colluding, truly colluding together with the powers of hell. You know, Archbishop Vigano recently came out, <clears throat> and he made a brief but very powerful statement <clears throat> that the deep state in the church, meaning Francis and his hierarchy, and the deep state in the governments of the world, notably our own government here in the United States of America, are colluding to bring about the new world order. He made it very clear that there is collusion between this. The deep state uh, in, the, in, the, in the government, in politics, <clears throat> is certainly echoed, supported by, 
and in some in some cases probably even led by the the deep state in the church in the Vatican right now. Uh, and the whole purpose is to bring about the new world order. Again, this encyclical of Francis that I just mentioned is a prime example of this this kind of collusion. Uh, this statement of Archbishop Vigano and this encyclical of Francis just happened to appear roughly at the same time. But, you know, only we Catholics can really understand the meaning of the deep state. Uh, why? Because we realize what the deep state is. The deep state is really, um, really the revolution. It is the, the agents of the revolution. Very much what Saul Alinsky, one of their patron anti-saints, uh, very much what Saul Alinsky stood for and preached and worked for all of his life. Uh, that is the revolution. This is a man, Alinsky, who wrote Rules for Radicals and dedicated it to Lucifer. And he dedicated it to Lucifer because Lucifer rebelled. He was the first great rebel. And as a result, he actually got his own kingdom. Kingdom of hell, but that's all right. He got his own kingdom. That's the important thing. That's, that's the voice of pride. Even Lucifer would not repent of that even now. Right? We know that. And Alinsky understood the mind of Lucifer, sad to say. But the point is, Alinsky actually gave us an insight into deep state there and the revolution and what, what these, all these people have in mind and what they're all working toward, right? the overthrow of the divine order and the institute of the satanic order here in the world. Uh, so the prince of this world would truly reign over every man, woman, and child, every soul on the face of the earth and have complete control, which is what he dreams of, right? So when we see this, we see it's deep. We see how deep that, is, that goes. It doesn't go just down to three or four levels of bureaucracy. It's not just a matter of promoting uh, someone uh, to replace a member of the deep state, an agent of the deep state, and find out later that the person you just promoted was also an agent of the deep state. So then they, they go somehow, and then you report somebody else, and they also, you know, it you doesn't get to go through the levels of the bureaucracy. It goes all the way to hell. It goes all the way down to hell. That's where the foundation of the deep state is. And it's to be found in the, in the uh, political uh, arena, and it's to be found in the, in the Novus Ordo Church, in modernism. Modernism, liberalism, the left, progressivism, and I mean, they're, they're all of a piece. It's not an accident that our, our St. Pius X issued the encyclical condemning modernism, and the threat it represented to the church in 1907, and ten years later, later, Our Lady appears at Fatima and warns us about the errors of Russia spreading throughout the world. <clears throat> Our Lady, uh, you know, say St. Pius X, warned about the errors of the modernists engulfing the church, spreading throughout the church. Our Lady comes and warns about the errors of Marxism, the errors of Russia spreading throughout the entire world, engulfing the world. These two are related, absolutely related to each other. In fact, were it not for the fact that the church itself would be engulfed by the errors of modernism, the church would hold back this flood of Marxist error from swamping the world. But with Vatican II and uh, modernism, right, this, this, this pandemic of modernism uh, that broke loose at Vatican II, uh, the church was in a sense marginalized, even suppressed, eclipsed, and so now the deep state in society could, could move forward with all of its evil plans, abortion, 
and all the rest. So the two of them are absolutely related to each other. The, um, you know, as far as, far as what the, the questioner says here, I mean, one has to, one has to see the connection here and uh, realize that uh, there is a satanic influence in both. Now, can we say that all of those who are engaged in this are fully possessed? Well, they're under the influence. I mean, we talk about somebody driving under the influence, okay? That means their blood alcohol level is beyond, above a certain legal limit. doesn't mean they're drunk, right? So we might liken it to somebody being drunk. That's when they're fully possessed by Satan. But somebody can be under the influence of Satan and be imperfectly possessed insofar as that person is, is under that satanic influence. And I have to say that every one of them is certainly under that satanic influence. Do you think any of them are fully, perfectly? Oh, possessed? definitely. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, there's and, no and doubt that there are, especially those who are leaders of this, would say that, I mean, there's such a violence one has to do one's conscience, and there's such a perversion of the will to remote mass abortion that I would think that any of these, personally, I think any of those who boldly, boldly stands up and campaigns on the issue of abortion, saying, I am, I am in favor of abortion uh, all the time, everywhere, abortion, you know, right up to birth or even beyond, as some have suggested, I would say that my, my presumption would be, my assumption would be that they're fully possessed. Because I think it would take full possession from Satan for a person to be so perverted to do that. My own thought on the subject. What about members of the Novus Ordo hierarchy? Oh, I think so, yeah. Well, look at the perversion. Look at the perversion that is setting in there. The, the, I mean, we have, we have two sins that cry to heaven for vengeance represented here. We have the cry for abortion, right? Sin that cries to heaven for a vengeance. The idea of adopting abortion as though it were some sacred right. And uh, even, this, even the Satanists have recognized a religious right, a satanic right involving abortion. And um, then you have the, you know, the deviant uh, sexual, you know, Control. perversions that are being foisted throughout the Nova Soto Church, for which it has become known. And um, and this is another sin that cries to heaven for vengeance. So there is no question in my mind, but that these evils are definitely satanic in origin, and that those primarily responsible in the world today for, for foisting them on the world and pursuing them, um, I would say promoting them, are definitely fully possessed. Wow. That's incredible. Well, is it incredible? <laughs> or would it only uh, make sense, really, in definitely, a sense? Definitely makes sense. It's very sad. <laughs> uh, well, okay, then, Father, I, I wanted to just briefly mention this. We had, um, I believe over the, the course of the last couple, several months, we've had four or five, uh, maybe even more, emails about... Uh, a book titled "The uh, The Warning." Uh, mm. It's by a Christine Watkins. It's apparently about the illumination of conscience idea. Do you know anything about this uh, this concept, Father? The illumination of conscience. What are your thoughts? First, on that? I heard of it was just uh, within the last, I'd say, thirty hours. <laughs> so, you know, nothing of it before then. But uh, as soon as I heard of it, I mean, I, I was looking into it. Uh, what little I can find, I haven't read the book. Certainly, and uh, I'd be interested in looking through it. But what I've read of it, it makes me very, very suspicious that, that somebody is coming up with a new idea 
almost akin to the rapture, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, sort of on the same level as the, as the rapture. Um, you know, this idea that at some time, even this year, and there's not much time left this year, right? right? Uh, does that mean in the year 2020, I guess, supposed I to happen? So, yeah. Yeah. That every single man, woman, and child on the face of the earth is supposed to have a, a, a spiritual experience where each one uh, sees his conscience clearly and knows exactly where he stands before God, right? And as though God gave each one a divine illumination of the state of his conscience and how he stands in ju as judged before God. And, um, you know, this, this is uh, what the church has taught with regard to, well, first of all, the particular judgment when we die, each one of us being in, informed of this, and uh, then the general judgment where all mankind will stand before God and the consciences of all will be revealed to all, right? And the justice of God's judgment toward all will be revealed. So this seems to be kind of a, a mishmash of the particular judgment and the general judgment. It just seems peculiar that this would all be coming out now, as though this is supposed to be something that's, that's forecast to happen. But it's, I, I find it very peculiar from a traditional Catholic point of view, just from the get-go, right out of the starting gate. A traditional Catholic point of view, does this mean that God is going to enlighten every single soul on the face of the earth that there was one God and three divine persons, that the divine Son became man, died for them on their, died for their sins, redeemed them, and established the traditional, the Catholic Church as we know it to be, the traditional Catholic Church of the ages, not this modern construct uh, associated with Vatican II. Does this mean everybody's going to realize that? Well, how can one be enlightened in conscience, really, unless that truth is brought home to him? That he is uh, believing errors about God, uh, that there are very bad consequences in his life for these errors, and everyone, in order to please God, must embrace belief in his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, as his Redeemer, and the church that Christ established. I mean, you'd think that would be the first enlightenment of conscience that everyone would need, right? Allah, the, what Our Lady said would be the triumph of the Immaculate Heart of Mary, you know? So I don't see any of that mentioned in connection with this. So as far as I'm concerned, this is basically some kind of Novus Ordo idea that everybody's just going to sort of be uh, confronted with where he is in his religious beliefs, to see that he's he's uh, doing bad things, but there's no mention anywhere that I can see about uh, the revelation uh, to people uh, with regard to conscience, right and wrong, of the true faith, the one true faith, the one true redeemer, of the one true God. You know, that, that doesn't seem to be mentioned anywhere. Mm -hmm. And we also uh, someone. A friend of ours did a, a, just a bit of research on the author and found that she has uh, many ties to the Opus Dei uh, organization, which okay. we talked about before, okay. and she apparently is also very close with Bishop Barron, um, mm. so no, definitely no friend of, of Catholic tradition there, so they, these things don't seem to bode well for the book either. Well, I mean, the, uh, the story is going deeper and deeper, I mean, talking about deep state, that Opus Dei is, is really the, the engine 
uh, or I should say the, the organization within the organization that is driving the Novus Ordo. And uh, there are those who have made this allegation, and they seem to have a lot of interesting information to back that up. Yes. So I wouldn't be surprised to see that this was an Opus Dei, um, an Opus Dei venture here, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, it also seems to go together with the modernist idea of revelation, even. The modernist idea of, of faith, you know, that everybody has his own individual experience. personal experience of God in yeah. his life, you know. So uh, I'm I'm uh, very wary of these things, and this one in particular. Mm-hmm. I understand it's also associated somehow with Garabandal, which is highly suspect. Okay. In my mind, you know. Okay. All right. Uh, then, Father, I guess uh, we, we've hinted at uh, Francis's recent encyclical a few times now. Um, what are your thoughts on this, Father? We, we've already had, had people emailing, asking about this. Um, we have a, just a, a brief overview of it here in uh, this short article that we printed off. It says that the the 287-paragraph document is a brisk walking tour of Pope Francis's social teaching and well worth a read. In this time of social distancing, the Holy Father reminds us that we ought to love our brothers and sisters as much when they are far away as when we are with them. Uh, the eight chapters in the encyclical, they call for all human persons to recognize and live out our common fraternity. Um, Father, obviously this is a very new encyclical. I don't know how much you, you've actually read through it, but uh, the research you've done so far, what are, you, what are your thoughts? Anything Again, I, I just have an overview of it. There are certain things I, I go to, to look for right away, that when something like this comes out from Francis, yeah. <laughs> I'll go to the, um, to the footnotes. And look at the references that he chooses to quote. And sure enough, he's quoting himself over and over again. <laughs> uh, he's quoting uh, Laudato Si and all the other stuff he's come out with. Yeah. But he's quoting also the Novus Ordo, you know, leaders. He's quoting all the, the, the usual cast of uh, modernists, right, who've, uh, who've been pontificating for the Vatican all this time. And there are very few citations, very few citations from anything before Vatican II. And those that he does quote are quoted that I, I out of context, I didn't get a chance to, to, to examine them yet, but they're being woven into the narrative in some kind of a Novus Ordo fashion to justify the rest. It's almost as though they, they said, well, we better start quoting somebody before Vatican II because it doesn't look good. And they're right, so they have to go find something to quote um, that uh, they can somehow twist to fit their, their modernist storyline. <clears throat> but, uh, but so if you look at the list of uh, footnotes, that's what you find, okay? Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a warning shot right there. Um, something else, even the title, though, going, going back to Fratelli, Tutti, you know, you supposedly this is a citation from St. Francis of Assisi because it was issued, well, actually, the Feast of St. Francis of Assisi when, when this, this was made public on October 4th, 2020. And, uh, you know, just to quote the two words, Fratelli Tutti, let's say, up oh, there you go. There's the theology of St., you know, as presented by St. Francis <laughs> in his summary of the faith. Well, um, you know, it means basically, they're translating it as, as Brothers and sisters all, okay? But it doesn't say brothers and sisters all. It says fratelli, right? It says brothers, all brothers. 
And uh, but they have to make it politically correct in in, uh, in English. <laughs> but you notice something. Uh, we talk about the religious uh, vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience, which are the evangelical counsels that our Lord recommended for those who wanted to follow Him more closely in this life. But the Novus Ordo modernists have replaced those with liberty, equality, and fraternity. Okay, these are the new. Evangelical, uh, anti-evangelical councils of the modernists. Liberty, fraternity, equality, you know. Um, or as the French revolutionists would say, liberté, fraternité, égalité, right? Uh, these are the, the, um, the three great, um, dictates of how to live well in this world now. Okay? So, um, this is actually part of it here. This is, this is part of that idea of fraternity in the Freemasonic sense. Okay. I mean, he mentions Mary. Okay. He mentions Mary as like the universal mother. And, uh, but even, even his mentions of anything quasi pious or anything quasi religious, uh, are very, very fleeting and really have no connection. Uh, he just throws it out there to give it a little bit of a, oh, shall we say, a veneer of some a piety, a religious piety. But most of it is just uh, just ongoing drivel about the world, the world, the world. Because it is modernism, and the modernists are concerned completely with the world. They don't talk about saving souls. They talk about improving one's lot in life, this life. Uh, very much like modernism, like, like Marxism. <clears throat> Again, the tie between modernism and Marxism is undeniable. The two of them fit together perfectly. In fact, you might say modernism is like the religious <clears throat> flavor of Marxism. It's, it's Marxism with a religious bent, a religious flavor to it. Even redefining the very notion of God in order to fix, fit, to fit in with an atheist worldview, frankly. But, uh, I picked out some uh, brief excerpts from this encyclical of Francis, which I thought was kind of, I, I knew right away would be kind of interesting. Uh, I'm looking at, and you mentioned, by the way, 287 paragraphs, right? 43,000 plus words, longer than the book of Genesis. But that makes sense because he's, in a sense, rewriting the book of Genesis, you know, the new creation of a new world, okay? a new world order, right? So why not rewrite the book of Genesis and replace it with his Fratelli Tutti, right? Makes perfect sense. Three times the length of the Gospel of St. John, okay? Because Francis has so much more to say and so much more significance. And being uh, facetious, uh, you know, not, not to be sarcastic, but <clears throat> again, the chutzpah of the modernist knows no bounds. Don't quote me on that. Quote St. Pius X. What does he attribute to them? He attributes to them their their uh, pride and arrogance on the one hand, and their boldness, their <clears throat> their boldness on the other hand. And this is definitely again an attempt to lay the groundwork and framework for a new world order. Anyway, <clears throat> with regard to paragraph number one eighteen, it's under the heading "Re envisioning the social role of property." Okay, and he. Uh, tries to explain that, well, in the first Christian centuries, you know, we, we developed the idea of a universal vision of, of property, that the created goods are really common and for everybody's benefit, see? 
And he ends there that treatment in paragraph 120 by saying the right to private, and by the way, he quotes, of course, of course, St. Paul VI, okay? Uh, and he says the right to private property can only be considered a secondary natural right derived from the principle of the universal destination of created goods. So, what he's saying is, you have the primary principle that created goods are to be enjoyed by all in common, and the idea of private property derives from that principle. It's just like a subset of the principle, and but it is subservient to that. Now, it is true, the church does acknowledge that if someone is in grave need of life, of what, it, what he needs to live, or what he needs to provide for the life of his family, then another, uh, another property which he holds in excess, right, um, is, should be given to that person, to, to in that grave need. And um, that that person actually, by a prior right, would have the right to take it for the sake of survival. It would be irrational, unreasonable, and immoral to withhold it from that person. I mean, the church has made this clear. I'm putting it very, very succinctly and probably needs a lot of nuancing that that's the way it comes down to. <clears throat> but the point he's making here opens the door to communism. It opens the door to communism, saying the primary, the primary principle is the universal uh, enjoyment of the goods of, of the earth. And, um, again, Francis has made no bones about it, and he makes no bones about it here, that he rejects the idea of capitalism. He has never criticized, he has never criticized socialism. He's never come out and said that socialism is, is definitely the way of the future, it's the way to go. It's the Christian, it's the Christian way to go. But he said it in so many different ways. I mean, the social gospel is the socialist gospel. That's what it really is. It's the socialist gospel. And Francis is all about the social gospel. <clears throat> so there's no doubt about it that he actually uh, is a, an advocate of socialism. He is kind of a prophet, you might say, of socialism in the world today. And after saying this, he says, the right to private property can only be considered a secondary natural right derived from the principle of the universal destination of created goods, then he says, this has concrete consequences. Well, actually, yes, it does have concrete consequences. And the concrete consequences are certainly <coughs> the idea of organizing society around socialism, the idea of socialism. He says, these concrete consequences ought to be reflected in the workings of society. So it's very clear what he's getting at. Um, he's implying it so boldly and so brashly that it would be completely dishonest to argue that that's not what he means. And yet, he says, it often happens that the secondary rights displace the primary and overriding rights in, pra in practice making them irrelevant. <clears throat> so uh, what really needs to be done, as, as Francis is kind of saying here, really, if you interpret it logically, that the, the, the primary rights have to override and make irrelevant the secondary rights involve private property. That is for the sake of the common good, or common good as Francis interprets it. Okay, And there's another section here, War and the Death Penalty, that's uh, beginning in paragraph 255. 
And he talks about, in page, uh, paragraph 259, it should be added that with increased globalization, what might appear as an immediate or practical solution for one part of the world initiates a chain of violent and often latent effects that end up harming the entire planet and opening the way to new and worse wars in the future. In today's world, there are no longer just isolated outbreaks of war in one country or another. Instead, we are experiencing a world war fought piecemeal, since the destinies of countries are so closely interconnected in the global scene. So, I mean, he's using this as a stepping stone to say, really, wars are inconscionable. Wars cannot be seen as a means to redress wrongs now, because now it's a globalist society, and if one nation... Uh, well, he doesn't say, put it this way. If one nation, in fact, tries to redress evils or, uh, let's say, injustices, it's going to affect the whole world badly. And so this is out of the question. There is no such thing as a just war anymore because the consequences are just unacceptable, uh, essentially because of globalization, he says. In the words of St. John the Twenty-Third, there we go again, right? Quoting each other, the modernists quoting each other, it no longer makes sense to maintain that war is a fit instrument with which to repair the violation of justice. So you see, no longer makes sense. As though it made sense at one time, <laughs> it doesn't make sense now. And we might say, well, why not? And they might say, well, because uh, of globalization. <clears throat> okay? So if it made sense before... Maybe one country could defend itself against the aggression of another country and make some kind of an argument that uh, it was the lesser of two evils at that time. But that's impossible to make that argument now. And uh, again, uh, it all gets back to globalization. Right? Imagine if, uh, imagine, Father, if, if during during World War II that, that Francis had, had said these things. Imagine, you know, that mm-hmm. how these uh, would have would have applied to to Hitler or, or Stalin. How how they would have loved to hear these things. Well, yeah, they would have said, "Oh, yes, we." we they they would have promoted him and promoted his teaching everywhere, <clears throat> pacifism. Uh, but you know, after World War One, which was entirely contrived. A system of treaties, uh, they committed countries to come to each other's aid if they were attacked. And it starts with the assassination of the Archduke Ferdinand in the streets in Sarajevo. And suddenly, people, are, nations are calling in uh, those they have treaties with to say, okay, come and fight with us, come and fight with us. And by the way, England, Britain, uh, well, Britain and uh, Germany, right? And uh, and France, I mean, they were ruled by cousins, right? <laughs> and, and they were fighting each other madly away. And, um, or I, I should say, I shouldn't say France, uh, Russia, rather. Russia, the Tsar and uh, the Kaiser and the King of England were actually cousins, okay? And they were reluctant to go to war. Uh, there were family enmities in, in, in occasion, especially against the Kaiser of the other two. But uh, nonetheless, they, they had to be dragged into that war. <clears throat> they were dragged into that war by the secret societies. The secret societies engineered World War I. <clears throat> and they engineered because that world war because they wanted to lay the groundwork for the calling of a League of Nations, which would take away the sovereignty of the various nations of the world, especially the Christian nations, right? Make them subject to a world government. 
And uh, so, I mean, a hundred-something nations of the world signed on to that League of Nations. Our nation here, the United States of America, would not sign into the League of Nations because we had uh, we had uh, representatives of the government, the United States government senators were saying this this compromises, even surrenders the sovereignty of the United States of America, which is contrary to our Constitution. And so another world war, a second world war, had to be had to be fought in order to again push the world and to overcome all opposition to a world organization in order to establish a united nations so immediately after world war ii the pressure was on to to establish the united nations of course and um you know this these things were all contrived um they did not happen by accident it wasn't just the assassination of a of an archduke uh, one day, as he was in a motorcade going down a street in Sarajevo, where they'd taken a, a wrong turn, that that wasn't what caused World War One. Uh, it was a pretext, and the same with World War Two. I mean, it, it was another war waiting to happen, as it were. Who was it who said that uh, the time between World War One, the armistice of World War One, and the beginning of World War Two was simply kind of a long armistice or a long lull, but World War Two was simply the next chapter in war. World War I uh, set up World War II and made it almost inevitable. What did Our Lady say at the end of World War I when she appeared at Fatima in 1917 toward the end of World War I? She said, if people do not pray and do penance, pray the rosary, make reparation for their sins, and above all, stop sinning and defending God, there would be another war worse than the first. Okay, So it was clear that the two are related, not only in terms of this world, but also in terms of the next. So we have this uh, situation here, as you say, that if somebody were to tout, don't fight against, you know, uh, like totalitarianism in Russia or Germany or wherever the leftists, because they were all leftists, uh, Hitler and Stalin and uh, Mussolini and the rest of them, they're all leftists. Don't fight against them. Well, you know what the consequences would be. Well, Francis is basically telling everybody, lay down your arms now, because we all have to find a way uh, by globalism, again, globalization, globalization, that is to have world government to uh, dictate to all the peoples of the world <clears throat> such that their nations, their national sovereignty is history, they surrender that to a global organization which will allot the world's good, all in the name of like a world world socialism. And he uh, also goes in talking about the death penalty, and you know where also he stands in the death penalty. Uh, he has violated the constant teaching of the um, the uh, magisterium of the church, the ordinary magisterium of the church from the very beginning about the legitimacy of the death penalty by uh, saying basically that it's intrinsically evil. And at the same time, he says nothing about abortion. I, I, someone sent me a, uh, mm -hmm. a snapshot of, of the encyclical where he kind of makes a laundry list of, of a lot of the political issues of the day and abortion is nowhere. Is not, is not included. Because, as he said right at the beginning, we're not supposed to obsess about abortion. That's right. yeah. So what we see is what he obsesses about. And one of those things that he obsesses about is not abortion, and he doesn't want us to obsess about it either. 
And uh, it is precisely the message of those who are now saying, vote for the pro-abortionists. And, uh, you know, that because they stand for the the principles, the moral principles enunciated by Francis. And, uh, but these are not the moral principles always taught by the Catholic Church, upheld by the Catholic Church. Not only, uh, you know, universally in the teaching of the Church in her magisterium, but individually in the lives of Catholics and martyrs who gave their lives to uphold these principles of morality and, uh, and of faith. This is what Francis does not stand for. <clears throat> this is what he discourages if he doesn't outright speak against these things. And so this is what we're looking at here in his, uh, this third of his encyclicals, Fratelli Tutti here. And uh, it is not good. I think we ought to return to this uh, after looking at it more closely and analyzing it a little more fully. But this is what comes to mind immediately. Um, we're told that um, this is published, well, some sources say that it's published October 5th, 2020, but um, it's supposed to coincide with the Feast of St. Francis of Assisi, um, and um, which in the traditional calendar is October 4th. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but in any case, uh, the, that's what it, it said at the Jesuit, the Jesuit post. Mm-hmm. So we might not even be inclined to believe the dates, <laughs> <laughs> let alone the page numbers given in the, the Jesuit post. So, yep. Okay. Well, Father, thanks for being here tonight. We got through a lot, uh, a lot of emails, covered a lot of ground, and uh, a lot of negative, negative, negative negativity in the mm. program tonight. <laughs> but uh, I guess. Well, Tom, I think when we see things like this, it just makes us so much more grateful that God has given us yeah. the grace to stay with it, you know, with this traditional, the traditional faith and the, the traditional practice of the faith, the traditional Catholic religion. <clears throat> um, I, I, I thank God for that. Uh, people tell me, well, one of the most difficult things for them to uh, realize is that God would give them the grace to hold on to the faith in, in spite of all of this confusion today because they feel so unworthy. And I would say to them, well, one of the reasons why God could give you the grace is because you do feel unworthy of it. <clears throat> and you don't hold the traditional Catholic faith <clears throat> as though for your favor and against others who don't have it, you're moved to compassion to want to bring them to the faith. Uh, this is exactly what Our Lady Our Lady represents. It was her lowliness that moved Almighty God to choose her to be his mother here on earth and to exalt her even to the heights of heaven. And so if we feel unworthy of the graces that were given, that's a good sign. It's not an argument that, well, it couldn't be, that I can't, this can't be right because God would not choose me to, you know, give me the grace. The very fact that we feel unworthy of it is, uh, is a prerequisite, as it were, you know, to receiving that grace and to be very, very grateful to Almighty God for His mercy in doing so. But also to accept the responsibility. To accept the responsibility for Believing, holding, practicing the traditional Catholic faith, we have to be the light, as it were, you know, set up on the lamp lampstand, not under the bushel basket. Absolutely. Father, thank you. Appreciate your time. Oh, certainly, Tom. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. 
Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady of Fatima, to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, and to pray and do penance. Thank you, and God bless you.